Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Box Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory. I'm your host. We've got some exciting podcast news to share with you. Tablet Magazine has just launched a brand new podcast. It is called Unorthodox, and it features three entertaining writers from Tablet weighing in on the latest in Jewish-related news and culture. We've got the inaugural episode here for you, and after you listen, if you want to hear more, what you need to do is go over to iTunes, search for Unorthodox, and subscribe. That way you can get every new episode every week. Meanwhile, Vox Tablet will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, so make sure to join us then. Here, then, is Unorthodox. Hi, welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine in which we talk about the news of the Jews with a disturbing level of honesty. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and as usual, I'm joined by my tablet colleagues, Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hey, Stephanie. And Staff Writer Leah Leibovitz. Senior Writer for you. Hello. Senior Writer Leah Leibovitz. Later in the show, we'll be talking with best-selling author A.J. Jacobs, who has set out to host the world's largest family reunion. And in our final segment, we will welcome our Gentile of the Week, Elna Baker from This American Life. First, a quick roundup of news of the Jews. From Tel Aviv to New York to the headquarters of the Trump campaign, a lot has happened to the chosen people in the past week. Across the globe, Jews debated whether Barack Obama's deal with Iran has brought us one step closer to annihilation at the hands of a latter-day Hitler or has helped keep the peace with a country that as recently as 1979 kind of dug Americans. John Stewart, nay Jonathan Stewart Leibowitz, came under fire when his former writer Wyatt Cenac revealed that the two had once tangled over Stewart's sticky impersonation of Herman Cain. E.L. Doctorow, the brilliant author of the Book of Daniel and Ragtime, died at age 84. And Donald Trump's Jewish lawyer, Michael Cohen, said there's no such thing as marital rape. Finally, just to cap off the week, Chris Brown, old flame and occasional batterer of Rihanna, played Tel Aviv, proving that there are amoral misogynist lovers of bad music in Israel, too. But let's start our discussion this week with Fagy Meyer, the ex-Hasidic woman, who jumped to her death from a rooftop bar in Manhattan, just one block from Tablet Magazine's offices. She had left the Bell's Hasidic community about five years ago. And right before dying, she left behind an essay in which she describes, and I quote, the austere lifestyle my people face of arranged marriages, segregation of genders, the wife shaving her head, the couple having sex with the wife wearing a bra in the complete dark but still producing 13 children, working for cash only so Uncle Sam can help with food stamps. Her death was huge news on social media. Liel Leibovitz, why do people love the tragic short lives of ex-Hasids so much? Well, you know, I think there's there's certainly a sort of a voyeuristic element to the sort of insular communities and, and their uh, uh, depredations. But, you know, I, I, I want to propose a new bit of legislation. Uh, I want to call it Fage's Law. Here's the thing. You could follow Orthodox Judaism. You could follow uh, Evangelical Christianity. You could follow Vlad the Impaler. If the presets of your religion demand that you excommunicate your own fucking child, you lose federal funding. Because really, disowning your kid has nothing to do with religion. It's just a dick move. And it should just be, <laughs> you know, frowned upon. Is that what it ha- had? Had she been disowned? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the reasons, I mean, even outside the Jewish community, this was huge news because, first of all, she jumped from a rooftop bar. I've been there. It is a horrible place. It what I mean, what bar was it? 235. I've, I've contemplated I mean, it's like, the same move. It's, it's really times. an awful yeah. place, but it's a really Not public place. Tragedy, it's a huge, but... you know, it's full of tourists, full of people. And she really just jumped to her death in front of all these people. And it's just such a sad spectacle. And 
I think even before you knew, I mean, I, a lot of people who had been sharing the story didn't even know she was a formerly Hasidic person, didn't even know her name, but just knew that a girl dove to her death in the middle of Manhattan. And I think it's just on that level, it just really, really hits you. She was in her 20s. It's an incredibly sad thing. And then when you know the deeper layer of the community she left and, you know, the hardship she has faced since, it just becomes just a sad, sad, sad story. I mean, I, I'm i always of mixed feelings when I see these stories because on the one hand, I kind of agree with Fagy's law. I think like, yeah, this really the worst thing about ultra sectarian religion is when they disown their children for things, which which, you know, Jews do. Mormons, if you leave the faith, you don't get to go to your sister's wedding in the Mormon temple or so I've heard. Um, the Belzers are really hardcore. I mean, they're like, you know, Lubavitchers, they're a little more chill. Satmars are pretty hardcore. The Belzers are like because these are all different Hasidic courts, right? They each follow a different grand rabbi, right? They each have a different charismatic leader. And these guys, yeah, I mean, what she says about the couple having sex with the wife wearing a bra in the complete dark, like that kind of thing. First of all, it plays into people's stereotypes about um, ultra-Orthodox Jews. You know, there's that urban legend that they have sex through a hole in the sheet, right. which is not true. And and Fagy Meyer actually alluded to that in her in her Facebook post, right? Um but, you know, this isn't this isn't the totality. I mean, there are Orthodox Jews who are like totally nice, decent people. So I always have mixed feelings because on the one hand, I'm glad she's bringing it to light. On the other hand, it's like, oh, God, now they're going to think this about religious people. Well, but th- there's another thing here. I think we we mentioned, you know, before we got on the air, the the really, really excellent new memoir by Shulam Dean called what's called All Who Go Do Not Return. All Who Go Do Not Return. Such a good book. And, you know, I, I read this and there are moments. I mean, I, I understand the. uh the airlessness of the insular community, but there were moments in which I read this book and be like, wow, dude, your life is pretty great. There's a tight community. There's a loving family. All of your needs are taken care of. And I think there is probably a shock. You leave this community for all again, for, for all its strictures, and you come here. You come to a fucking <laughs> rooftop bar in Manhattan, and they're like douchebags with like, you know, with like shoes ba- with baseball shoes caps. Without, yeah, and shoes without socks, oh. like, you know, <laughs> ordering sex on the beach, you know, like, <laughs> oh my God, like, who wouldn't want to just, you know, end it all? Also, this week, Adam Sandler has a new movie out, Pixels, which, if it's like other recent movies of his, like The Great Cobbler, will not be seen by anyone except Liel Leibovitz, who loves Adam Sandler. And Stephanie, it turns out, has a theory of Adam Sandler and Andy Samberg. I actually have very few feelings about Adam Sandler. I remember him fondly from The Cosby Show, uh, where, he, <laughs> where he learned his a chops. Too soon. A sentiment, yeah, you do not hear very frequently I just want days. to make the point that I remember the, co- the early years of The Cosby Show, when he played Theo's friend. Um, Stephanie, you're, you have a, a master theory of, of Adam Sandler and Andy Samberg. Well, yes. I mean, I think I know at least, you know, I know the early, in my mind, Adam Sandler stuff. And then a lot of it is the Hanukkah song. And we sort of heard him list all the names of Jews. And it was like a really big deal because you, first of all, you found out all these people were Jewish. And it was, you know, Jews love nothing more than to find out other people are Jewish and to tell you that they're Jewish. It's one of our great pleasures. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, it's our national pastime. Um, And so now you have Andy Samberg, who was actually played... um, Adam Sandler, it's very hard to say both of their names, who's played Adam Sandler's son in a terrible, terrible movie that doesn't Excuse even deserve me. to be named. Kind of enjoyable, though, because, you, you know. You don't remember the name, do you? That's my boy. That's my boy. Yeah, he plays, he he has, uh, Adam Sandler has an affair with the teacher, and, or when he's a student and he has a son, and it's Andy Samberg, and he's sort of like a buttoned up suit guy, and he, the dad comes back into his life. Anyway, so he really has passed the torch on, or really solidified the connection between the two of them. Um, and 
you have Andy, Andy Samberg now, who is so Jewish, but never tells you he's Jewish. And, and, you know, his characters are always inherently Jewish. You know, he's on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He won um, an Emmy for it or a Golden Globe. I can't really remember. I think it was an Emmy. But, by the way, he won, he's like winning awards. You know, he's not just like a comedian. But um, not that comedians don't win awards. I'm digging myself into right. a real hole here. Is, the, but, Golden Globe, is but, the Golden Globe really an award, But basically... Stephanie? He's never has to say he's Jewish. And it's like, you know, on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, he references a rabbi in his bar mitzvah. So the theory is that Sandler, like, staked out such Jewy, Jewy turf that now an Andy Samberg can come along and be in the Jewish closet? Exactly. No, not in the Jewish closet. I don't closet. think that's he's, a win. He's implicitly Jewish where Sandler was explicitly Jewish. And it sort of marks where we are as a community where you don't really have to say you're Jewish. You know, you are Jewish. And you don't really need to sing about it either. Well, given the gravity of this Talmudic, uh, you know, point, uh, I, I, I have to disagree strongly. Uh, my theory of the Sandler-Sandberg uh, representation of American Jewish life is, is, is far more grim. I, I think, you know, Sandler, first of all, the amazing thing about Sandler is that in every one of his movies, the character's name is like ridiculously Jewy. It's like always like Steve Moshe Israel. It's like it's always like this great big In the one with Jennifer Aniston, his name is David Maccabee. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's it's always something like that. A real throwback. A right. real throwback. A real throwback. Um, and I think the difference between, and, and I love Sandberg and I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. This is not a critique of, of the, the art as well, but uh, at all, but I think this is the difference between, the difference between Sandberg and Sandler or Sandler and Sandberg is the difference between you know, personality and identity. I think for Sandler, this is something that's like so deeply heartfelt that it is uh, a, a part of him and it's unimaginable not to be David Maccabee. And I think for Sandberg, it's part of the sort of like postmodern deconstruct, let's play with our identity. I could be on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and I could sort of be Jewish, but I'll call myself Peralta because I'm also a bit non-Jewish. And does it really matter anymore? Jews can plausibly play Italians. Right. And it's, it's just all kind of like playful at a distance. And you know what? I like the old school better. I like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. I'm a big okay, Jew. But fine. And I'm actually, I think I'm with you there. And I make movies like Pixel. <laughs> I think I'm with you there. My problem, Liel Leibovitz is that he makes so many crappy movies. And I worry, as someone who did enjoy much of his early work, that that he's going down the path of Robin Williams and Eddie Murphy, where just he can't even tell a good movie from a bad anymore. He's surrounded by so many yes-men. Sure, if Judd Apatow calls and says, let's make funny people, he'll do it, and he'll make a good movie from time to time. But basically, at this point, if someone will cut him a $10 million check, he'll make anything. I mean, he's making like movies yeah, but, that we don't even know exist because they go straight to, to like airplanes. Okay, Grown Ups was a good movie. As was Grown Ups too. We'll stop there. Tablet ran a story recently about gay rights in Israel, which is a controversial topic because Israel lovers love to point to it like this is the country in the Middle East where gay people can be gay. And anti-Zionists like to talk about what they call pinkwashing, which is when Zionists talk about how great it is to be gay in Israel to distract from death and destruction in Gaza. Liel, how should we think about gay marriage in Israel? It, it, it can't ever happen, right? Because the, alt, the Orthodox rabbinate controls marriage over Well, there. Be, before we think about gay marriage in Israel, let's think about marriage in Israel, uh, which is a real issue here. The issue isn't, you know, whether two people of the same sex can get married. The, the, the issue is whether anyone could get married outside of the dictates of the rabbinate. And currently the answer is no. There, there are all kinds of civil Like you unions. can't get a civil marriage in Israel. Well, you you have get to civil have... unions and you can get married elsewhere and it will be recognized, but you cannot walk into City Hall and, you know, right. get married. Only Orthodox rabbis can marry Jews Correct. in Israel. Right. And and should that change? Oh, I mean, you're, you're Israeli. You got married yes. here, right? I got married here. Yes. 
uh, it, it should. I, I think one of the one of the rare issues that unite all of world Jewry, regardless of you know uh, uh, place, uh, level of belief, etc., is the notion that the rabbinate just fucking has to go right the fuck now. It is such an archaic, Byzantine, useless harmful uh, institution. It represents no one except for a handful of rabbis who are sort of thirsty for more power and to solidify their status. There is absolutely no room for it, and it's uh, increasingly harming uh, relationship between Jewish communities around the world and also Jewish communities inside of Israel. So what do a couple, you know, a man and a woman who secular who live in Tel Aviv, what do they do if they're getting married? For the most part, they uh, take a deep breath. And they go to the rabbinate and they get and some, on with it. Some ultra-Orthodox rabbi whose synagogue they've never been in, yeah. whose tenets they don't agree with. It's not even a synagogue. It's just like a rabbinic court. Some yeah. guy. Yeah, some guy. You go in. They send you to the mikveh. You just do the thing. You laugh about it with friends. All right. So last question on this. Is there any chance that the 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 hold that the Orthodox rabbinate has on marriage over there will ever go away? I think so. I think so because I, I think the the the... the kind of vanguard here are the actual Orthodox in Israel, who are increasingly, uh, there's a, a famous case not so long ago involving a, a rabbi from a frat named Rabbi Riskin, who's well known here too, who's sort of, you know, pushing the envelope more and more about things like, you know, uh, women's uh, ordained, women being ordained for the rabbinate and, and uh, mixed prayer groups, etc. I think they will be the ones who will uh, ultimately collapse this corrupt and evil uh, institution. All right, it's time to turn to our first guest, A.J. Jacobs, author of the monster bestseller, The Know-It-All, in which he read the whole Encyclopedia Britannica, and The Year of Living Biblically, in which he tried to follow all 600, all 613 commandments from the Old Testament. Absolutely. Even yes. the ones that are rendered null and void by the destruction of the temple. That's right. I had to try to find a little loophole, a way to follow them That's intense. without the temple. And also, you once wrote for MTV's Celebrity Deathmatch, right? Uh, yes, I'm uh, I'm sort of proud of that, but not really at all. <laughs> so for your latest project, you have tried to find all your relatives. Is that right? That is right. Two years ago, I got an email from a guy and he said, you don't know me, but I'm your 12th cousin. So, of course, I thought he's going to ask me to wire $10,000 exactly right. to Nigeria, right? <laughs> but it turns out he's part of this group of researchers and scientists and genealogists who are building the biggest family are they, tree. Ever. Are they Mormons? There are many of them are Mormons, as a matter of fact, which our next guest. Yeah. Uh, but they uh, this is not just a, your average family tree. It's like a, a forest, an Amazonian forest. And it started with 10,000, 20,000. Now it's literally up to 240 million people on the same family tree. And I'm on it. Barack Obama's on it. Adam Sandler. Leal's favorite is on it. Uh, you guys are on it. So it's it's Dude, just who's your least favorite person on that tree? Well, is there anyone you look to be like? Oh, come on! <laughs> I mean, there's sure there's tons. I mean, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer's on it. So. <laughs> but that's through my wife's side. I do want I connect to him through my wife, so not me. But yeah, it's. Uh, I was fascinated. I thought this is amazing. You know, we this cliche of we're all one big family that you hear when you're a kid. It's literally true now, and you can prove it. So I thought uh, I want to make this my next book, and I want to throw the world's biggest family reunion. So that's what I spent the last year doing. 
How many people were there? There were 3,700 people in New York, but it was also there were 41 simultaneous parties around the world. So in New Zealand and Mexico uh, and Salt Lake City, the Mormons had a huge one with uh, 3,500 people. So, yeah, it was uh, about 10,000 worldwide. But I mean, so what you do at the like, what was the substance of the party? Like wa- walking around to people and saying, yeah, you're my ninth cousin. Exactly. That was it. Was there, was there anywhere to go beyond that? <laughs> you we have nothing in common, that? but we're ninth cousins. <laughs> well, it was. I tried to get all these speakers. I tried to make it like almost like Burning Man, but for cousins. So I had like 50 speakers. Henry Louis Gates uh, gave a talk and uh, Andy Borowitz from The New Yorker and uh, all these people talking. And then we had all our cousins showing their wacky cousin talents. So we had the Frisbee champion of the world uh, giving Frisbee lessons. So it was, uh, I tried to keep them entertained. They're my family. Does this change your, your your sort of outlook on actual family? Do you wake up the morning after the reunion, look at your own kids and say, oh, I see you in a kind of different light now that I know that, <laughs> you know, Henry Louis Gates is also in the mix. And they're not as good as Frisbee. Yeah, that's true. Who are you? Well, that, I can pick and choose from these guys. Well, that is the beauty. You know, they say you can't, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your relatives. Mm-hmm. Now you can choose your relatives. You got, <laughs> you got millions of them. But I will say that was one of the main, uh, the main goals of this project is to show that we are all one big family. It's it's very kumbaya, and the idea that maybe we should treat each other with a little more kindness. And a little more kindness? What kind of family did you have? I, know, I knew you would. Oh. <laughs> I felt that was coming. Well, yes, I have three sons, and I've seen how they wrestle. So I know, I know that. But I do think that we we treat our family with just a little bit more favoritism. And actually, this was very exciting because I got someone who's far smarter than me to endorse this idea. Cass Sunstein, also a Jewish uh, man. He's and, like my ninth cousin. Yeah. Yeah. He's and, actually my eighth cousin. <laughs> once he removed. Is, weirdly, he is my first cousin once wow. removed. Did you so, know that already? I did know okay. that. He's, he's your mom's a, first he's cousin. He's a real cousin. Yeah, he's my mom's first cousin. And uh, But he came up with this idea of the family heuristic, which is that we treat people in our family better than we treat strangers. And so this is sort of hijacking that idea and maybe we'll treat every Everyone in the world more kindly. I don't think it's going to solve racism and and world wars, but uh, you know it can't hurt. It's not going to hurt. It's going to nudge us tiny bit, maybe. How closely are you related to your wife? I am related, uh, probably about fifth or sixth cousin. Okay. Uh, I mean, we're both Ashkenazi Jews, right? So. That's right there. I mean, you know, we loved to interbreed back in the old country. All four of us, in fact, I think. So, (laughs) quite possibly. And this was actually, this is going to be a chapter in my book because the idea of first cousin marriage is fascinating. It's legal. First cousin marriage is legal in 25 states, illegal in 25, right down the middle. And the people who are advocates see this as the next marriage equality movement. This is why should they not? It's not be a, polygamy. It's cousins. Yeah, cousin marriage. Yeah, maybe polygamy right alongside marrying three of your cousins. That could be another one. But yeah, this is the idea. Why should they not be allowed to marry your cousins? All right. So this is for social media. We're going to send like do, AJ Jacobs endorses or doesn't endorse <laughs> first cousin marriage. Oh, it's a tough one. I actually, I, I think it's okay. Believe it or not, I think it's okay because if you, it's a slippery slope. The reason why you would ban 
cousin marriage is because of the possible birth defects. But if you do that, then what do you take? Two people who are very, very unrelated. They both have Alzheimer's genes. Are you going to say they can't get married? So it's uh, it's a tricky one. But I all right, if you need to do it on Twitter, yes, I am pro-first cousin marriage. <laughs> I have an important question for you. So yeah. your books are all about taking on really, really intense tasks, you know, reading the whole Encyclopedia Britannica, following every single biblical commandment. What do you do to, like, relax? Like, what's a weekend like? <laughs> or are you just like, what else could I read to completion? Well, it's true. I get, I, when I'm not in one of these projects, I get very anxious. I have a sort of postpartum depression. So, but yeah, I guess it's uh, my kids. My kids take up an incredible amount of energy. They are more tiring than living biblically, than reading the encyclopedia. <laughs> they are a massive project. What's next for you? What's the next completest project? Well, I do have to write this. Yeah, I know. You have to write this book, yada, yada, book. But after this... After this, well, I do have uh, a deal to write a book for TED Books. They have their own book series, and it's all about gratitude. Gratitude is very important. So that's the idea. And and after your next good book... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> After the treacly one about gratitude, I'm working. That? I'm going to work with Adam Sandler, and uh, I'm going to write his cousin memoir. Adam. Yeah, yeah, cousin Adam. All right, thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Thank you very much, AJ Jacobs. You can read more about his project and all of his relatives at ajjacobs.com. One of the regular features on the show is the Gentile of the Week, where we invite on somebody who is not at all of the Jewish persuasion. And we're very pleased to have with us this week as our first guest Gentile, Elna Baker. Elna is a producer for This American Life, and she's the author of the memoir, The New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. Welcome, Elna. Um, Now, I know you have a couple questions for us for your panel of Jewish experts here. Yes. So, but first, I have to say, I read your book about fighting your libido in Manhattan while trying to stay true to your Mormon values. And I have a question for you. First, well, two, a quick one and then a long one. The scene in Nobu, where you're working as a hostess. Yes. Where um, it's this downtown sushi restaurant where stars always come in. And some movie star in his 60s tried to fill you up. Who was it? You know, I, it's been so, it's so funny. I used to never say it, but I don't, I don't care anymore. It was Sam Shepard. Really? Uh-huh. Oh, really? Yeah. And then he tried to like, he followed you home in the cab. I mean, he was really, he was kind of creepy. It was, yeah, it was one of the, uh, I remember, because I, I was Mormon, I never told him I was Mormon, so I, I there was no way he was going to be able to come home with me, but I don't think he realized that, and, you know, we had kissed, and then I had said goodbye, and uh, I remember shutting the door of the cab, and then not hearing the door shut, and then I turned around, and Sam Shepard was standing on my sidewalk, and I, it was this weird moment of, like, I can't shake Sam Shepard. <laughs> What's going on? Wait, I'm thinking of Sam Elliott. It was Sam Shepard, the playwright. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's also in movies. He's also in movies. Yeah. But he's great. I mean, I'm not saying that you should have invited him in and lost your virginity to him. Like, I I understand it was creepy. He was also, I think I... Mark would have lost (laughs) it. Yeah. I would have. (laughs) I think he was like 71 (laughs) at the time. I didn't realize. He's well-preserved at the time. And he was married. And he was, yeah, to Jessica Lange. Whoa. But they're done. So now you can talk about it. Or they're still married. Uh, They're done now. Well, now but they apparently are. he's he's kind of a womanizer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So and 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 the book ends with you like you've been you've moved to New York City, you've gone to drama school, you've paged for David Letterman, you're trying to decide if you want to stay Mormon or if you want to get some. Like where how that how that shake out? 
it shook out in the direction of getting some. Okay. And has that been hard for your family? And Oh, yeah. I mean, I I left Mormonism when I was, well, I took a break. I took a year break, uh, kind of like a rumspring. A, sab- a rumspring? A sabbatical? Yeah, where I was like, you know, I'm, I, this is so just going to help me understand how much I want to be Mormon. But it's going to let me understand what the rest of the world is like. And then I'm sure I'll go back to being Mormon. And, of course, that's not how it worked. I think introducing these little things that I had never tried or done uh, shifted my perspective enough that after the year, I decided I wasn't going to go back to church anymore. And I was 28 at the time. Was there one small thing like that that really made an impact? Like one seemingly insignificant experience that really sort of made you think, huh, I want to be on that side of the ledger. Well, uh, co- coffee. I mean, that that's something I was like, oh, my hey, whole life no. would have been better. <laughs> like more than any other substance. Because right, at least if you're Mormon, you can have sex someday. You get married, you can have all the sex you want, but no coffee ever. No coffee ever. And I really like coffee. Uh, the other the other thing I remember thinking was so bizarre was uh, so when you're Mormon and uh, you grow up learning like the Holy Ghost, every choice you make, you sort of have to run by the Holy Ghost. And it, it almost separates you from your own intuition. So it's like, oh, should I move to New York or Utah? And you pray and you listen and you're supposed to feel this sort of enlightened, like a happy feeling if it's a good thing and a bad feeling if it's a bad thing. And that's always just like the Holy Ghost guiding you. And so it'd been almost to the end of the year. I hadn't felt that feeling in a very long time. And I smoked my first cigarette properly. And I just remember feeling like a, and I was like, the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost. <laughs> what? This, people can just, you could just create that with a cigarette. Yeah, the like, Holy Whoa. Ghost is like, I've been trying to tell you for a really long. Why do you think these things are so fucking fun? Like, come Start on, guys. smoking. It's interesting because I always think of Mormons as kind of like parallel universe Jews in that you call non-Mormons Gentiles and you have your little holy land, but it's, and it's hot and desert-like. Yep. And you wear special underwear. And it's like, it's like you have dietary. It's, it's kind of the and same thing. And everything's improved. Everything's like a notch above it's amazing for the Mormons. Yeah, know. of course. They have well, the flight's not as long. The yeah. flight's not. <laughs> oh, I see. It's, it's but... all American. It's very so, well engineered. Very well engineered. So a little ironic that we're having you on to ask us about you know because you know you know what we're like. We're like you, but but you have some questions for your panel of Jewish experts. Here. Yes, I do. The one the one thing I'm curious, and I've always been really jealous about this, in that if you're Mormon and you stop going to church and you stop practicing the sort of tenets of Mormonism. The the actual faith kind of they don't really let you say that you're Mormon anymore. And so when I left, I thought I would like immediately not be Mormon. But I realized like I think like a Mormon. My my brain is wired the way I was raised. And I wish I could just still be like, yeah, I mean, I was I, I'm Mormon. Like a Mormon ish. Yeah. But I feel Jewish, like yeah. uh, Jews are allowed to say that they're Jewish, even if you literally just because you're born. Right. Jewish? Well, it's the genius of the cultural Jew. I have no idea who came up with it, but they're brilliant because you can sort of say, oh, yeah, I'm a cultural Jew. I have no like that doesn't mean anything, but it means that you are sort of like inherently Jewish. There's some like. I think it really means like you like bagels and like sometimes Woody Allen movies or like you used to like. Woody hey, Allen we're not allowed movies. to like Woody Allen. Movies. Yeah, I know we used to. But. Right. I also think there's the the dark side of that, which is you're always not to sort of take this here, but like, you know, if there's a list of Jews somewhere, you're going to be on it. Right. Like it doesn't matter whether you go to temple or not or you just go for the high holidays. I think there's like 
there's a two there's this deep seated worry of you know like I'm always, you can't not be Jewish in a way um, and I wonder if that comes from centuries of oppression and being chased out of places but I don't know I feel like there's the two sides you're like oh you know I, I identify with a lot of Jewish things even though I don't go to temple but I I don't buy the whole notion of the cultural Jew. I think I think you nailed it just right when you said like the the way your whole brain is wired was Mormon. I think it's the same thing. I, I think what makes you Jewish isn't the fact that, you know, you laugh at Seinfeld jokes or you like bagels. It's really that you grow up with this really theological precept and, and, and the notion here, I mean, think about what is done to us. You you come up and they say you're the chosen people and you're like, Great, for what? It's like we nobody knows. It's yours <laughs> to figure out. So you go through life being like what what just happened and and that constant you know agitation which is really theological as well as psychological i think is what makes us a nation and i think even those of us who don't realize it or will never say they're religious jews are really really religious jews that's we grew up being told that we're chosen mm-hmm. as well and it's interesting and also that you're separate and different from everyone else and it's interesting to grow up with this idea I've never I feel like I'm always the like the matchstick girl like looking through the window at everything in the world and being like oh I wish I could be a part of it but I can't cuz I'm different. Yeah. And I still impose that on every situation I enter even though I'm I'm a part of everyone now. I still can't separate the way I see myself as as not fitting in. Because it's weird that being chosen is also not fitting in. Yeah, no, it's not. Oh, by it's design, like, it's not fitting. It's not. A, it's not. A, it's not fun. It's like when why when people convert, you're like, wow, you really want this? You, mm-hmm. you know, like welcome to being chosen for all sorts of you know, all sorts of things. Some of them good, some of them pretty negative. You know. Um, final question: Around the offices of this American life, are you like? Are you the Mormon girl? Uh, Miki Meek is Mormon too. I mean, grew up Mormon. There are yeah. two Mormons There's two in Mormons. Irish shops. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, former Mormons. Although we do notice, like, a lot of times there will be stories that are about Mormons that will come up. And even we're like, well, we can't have another one. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone should go read the New York Regional Mormon Singles Halloween Dance. But, like, that was a few years ago. What's your latest project? Uh, I, um, you know, it's funny. When I left the church and I was like, I had just finished writing my book. And I thought, you know, I don't want to write any of this or I'm going to feel like I'm not allowed to do things that are, quote unquote, wrong. So I made this conscious choice of like, I'm not going to write any of these stories. I'm just going to like live. And I think now it's been enough time that all of a sudden I'm thinking like, I should write about some of that stuff. So I'm, I've am i started writing. Ex-Mormon a, ex, essays? Yeah, ex-Mormon essays. Uh, so I'm working on that now. All right. You'll come back when you have some ex-Mormon essays. I will. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much, Elna Baker. Thanks for having thank you. me. And now before we leave our prayers of the week. For the coming week, my prayer is this. Wet Hot American Summer's eight-part sequel debuts on Netflix. I have never found the original movie funny. That's really not allowed in hipster comedy circles. Everyone loves this movie. So my prayer is that the Netflix series, which I will watch, helps me understand the original joke of Wet Hot American Summer. Liel? Um, I'll say this in a form of a prayer. Uh, dear, Dear God the Almighty, we thank you for the bounties of the Trump candidacy. Uh, it's, it's been great. It's also been enough. So we could stop now. Thank you. My prayer is that Tablet's first annual herring tasting, which happens later this afternoon, goes well as someone who doesn't like herring. I will report back next week. 
Join us next week on Unorthodox. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Magazine. Our podcast is produced by Julie Subrin with help from Sarah Ivry. Rabbinic supervision by Michael Showalter and kosher slaughtering by Toby Ziegler. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. But this week, we go out listening to the voice of great Jewish troubadour Theodore Bickel, who died this week at age 91. Join us next week on Unorthodox. I'd fill my yard with chicks and turkeys and geese and ducks for the town to see and hear Squawking just as noisily as they can And each loud Would land like a trumpet on the ear As if to say, here lives a wealthy man Oi if I were a rich man, all day long I'd be the bomb. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to. Win.